Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. This is our 137th show. Today's guest is Neil Mahutra, uh, editor and co-author of Frontiers in Social Innovation, which I really enjoyed this book and thought it was really interesting and um, what a fantastic topic to talk about. So, Neil, welcome. Thanks for having me. Glad to, glad to be here on Thanksgiving week with you. Well, I much appreciate you taking the time. So before we talk about the book, why don't you give us a little bit about your background? Sure. Um, so I'm a professor at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Um, and at Stanford, among my many roles, I direct the Center for Social Innovation. And our center is basically the mission is to equip our students to start enterprises um, and work for enterprises that make the world a better place for everyone. Um, and we try to develop curricular and co-curricular programming to, to make that happen. Excellent, excellent. And, and why did you and the others put together this book? And, and, and who are you hope is going to read this book? Sure. Um, so basically, we, I get probably an email a day um, from an entrepreneur, um, you know, young person, someone who's trying to build their business career, asking if we could help them out, if the Center for Social Innovation at Stanford helped them out. And, and we don't have the bandwidth to address every response. You know, it kind of seemed unfair that some people would get our attention and others. So, you know, I usually have to send a stock response, which is, you know, unfortunately, we don't have the bandwidth to respond to every request we get. And I was feeling bad about that because there were so many people who wanted our advice um, and we, you know, we're just not scaling. Uh, we were reaching our students, but nobody outside um, of Stanford. And so I decided we just should share our knowledge and our curriculum with the world. I don't believe that ideas should be cloistered in an ivory tower. I think if we have good ideas, we should share them at low cost with as many people as possible. And so that was the motivation for me and the authors to put together the book. Well, I have to say, you know, before everybody came on, you and I were talking, I have enormous admiration for Stanford and its contribution uh, to entrepreneurship on a global basis. I mean, I taught at Wharton for 10 years and it took a long time for Penn to focus on uh, economic development and a, um, taking innovation and creating companies around it where Stanford embraced that, I guess, 60 years ago. And hence uh, the world focuses on your part of the planet uh, when it comes to innovation. So that's fabulous to be working in such an amazing school. Please define and explain and, and explain what is social innovation? Yeah, I mean, I think um, it's a very broad term, but the way we uh, think of it and conceive of it is sort of designing and building organizations that address the UN development goals. So basically, um, you know, there's many different domains but a lot of the UN development goals are around health, improving people's health, improving sustainability environment, and increasing education and economic access. 
And so social innovation is designing a company that not only has a profit mission, but alongside that profit mission helps make the world a better place through the UN Sustainable Development Goals. Uh, one is a B corporation, and how does a company qualify for that? Yeah, so there's a lot of confusion because there's these B corporations and benefit corporations, and sometimes people call the benefit corporation a B corporation because it's along the lines of a C corporation. But um, just to kind of give, there's one of them is sort of a non-official thing, and one of them um, is sort of a, a like a government status. So I'll talk about the government status first, which is the benefit corporation. So when you incorporate, you know, there's many ways you can incorporate. You can incorporate as a standard limited liability corporation. You could um, incorporate as a nonprofit. And, you know, new option is you can also incorporate as a benefit corporation. Now, this doesn't currently provide any tax advantages in the United States, but it's sort of a way to signal that you have a double bottom line or triple bottom line focus, that you care not only about shareholder profits, but about other stakeholders. Uh, that's distinct from B Corporation, which basically an NGO certifies you. Um, and there's like some process, there's like an online forum, there's an interview process where you, know, you can basically get registered by this organization, but essentially it's just a stamp of approval. There's no like official benefit. And I guess in my view, the future of the world has to be kind of combining the B Corporation and the Benefit Corporation, which is, I, in my, this is my personal view, I think we need to have a world where we have for-profit corporations that have tax advantages that have some certification. And you could say, well, this is going to be really complicated to do and people are going to cheat the system. Well, you could say the same thing about nonprofits, but nonprofits you know, work and we have auditing systems, et cetera. Um, and I believe we need to have more hybrid organizations and the government has to support that. Yeah, I, I agree with you totally. And, and more so now than ever, especially with climate change, um, people starving in Africa, which has been going on like, as, I guess, as long as I've been alive and all the other things that uh, we need to deal with. So these are really must must haves um, on a global basis. You write that social innovation focuses on three core concepts. What are they, and what are and why are they important? And when I say you, I mean you and your fellow writers. Yeah. So I mean, I just want to kind of frame the book and how I would kind of talk about three areas where social innovation in the 21st century is kind of different than it was in the 20th century. Um, so one of the big themes of the book is kind of about the agnosticism of organizational form that, you know, if you were to think about social innovation in the 1980s and 90s, and this was basically forwarded by business schools like the Yale School of Management, you know, it was really about nonprofit management, which is, you know, we achieve social innovation through nonprofits and nonprofits need to be run better and run more like businesses. That was kind of the mantra of the 1980s and 90s. And I would say that right now in the 21st century, we have a different mantra, which is that a for-profit company can also be involved in social innovation. That it's not just the domain of government and nonprofits. Um, second, I would say is that we're having more rigor around what social innovation means and more frameworks in a common language. So one common one that the book talks about is the theory of change, um, which is basically most impact investors are going to ask you, what's your theory of change? So it's basically your logic for how 
the inputs and activities of your corporation lead to social outcomes and outputs um, in, in a logical way. And then finally, I think another big theme we talk about is impact measurement. So financial measurement is kind of easy. You know, you know if you're making profits in your company. Now, how do you know if your company is making social impact? I think that's a much more complicated question. And if we're going to have organizations that are attempting to do both things, you can't just measure your profits. You also have to measure your social impact. That's a tough thing to get through Wall Street, although you're seeing more uh, um, of that happening. I mean, you're reading in the Wall Street Journal how um, private equity groups and uh, foundations and pension funds are now asking more to be held accountable for what you're going to do to the world and to the people in the society that you're selling to or working in. So that's making some, I guess, significant progress still, right? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So I'll just, that's a great question. I'll try to unpack it a bit. So you see basically major private equity firms like TPG. So TPG has a growth fund, which you know many people invest in, but they also have a new social impact fund called the Rise Fund. Um, and these impact investing funds are growing. All the major players are starting them. Um, I mean, they're still a niche product, like don't get me wrong, but every niche, every great, every kind of widespread product started out niche at some point. And the pensions, I think, are really fascinating. So right now, I would say a lot of the focus is on do no harm. So you don't want to invest in companies that might be actively doing harm. For example, you know, let's say fossil fuel or something like that. But that might shift to not just do no harm, but what are the companies that make the biggest positive social impact? And it's very possible that pension funds could be driving this because if you look at most pension holders, they're very pro-social people. Like if you look at CalPERS or CalSTRS, um, these are people that were school teachers or they worked in government for a lot of their careers. And you interview them and a lot of them, yeah, they want a stable and safe retirement, but they also don't want their money to going to companies that are damaging the planet, the environment. Um, and they also want their money going to companies that are improving economic opportunity, educational access, healthcare. So I agree with you. I think this is this is potentially the future. Uh, what impact did the pandemic have on social innovation? And you share some great, the book shares some great examples of diverse organizations working together for the common good. Yeah, so there's two really, uh, there's two specific chapters on COVID and how social innovation addressed the pandemic. But the pandemic, I mean, the book was written in the pandemic. A lot of our authors were thinking of it as they were writing their chapters. You know, I think that the great thing that the pandemic did is it allowed a lot of democratization and um, allowing the government to scale up um, social enterprises. So you saw a lot of um, companies. Um, building apps to help contact tracing, to get people um, access to PPE, things like that. Um, and you, you basically saw government organizations and seeing what the people on the ground were doing and saying, okay, these are good ideas. They can't scale. Let's use the power of government to scale. So people were doing that because they were desperate and the government you know, needed to act quickly and they didn't have all the manpower to do so. But that could be applied to many other problems besides the pandemic. And so that's kind of what the book talks about. Um, you know, there's other examples of really interesting things the private sector did. So Garden Health, this is a company that um, is a for-profit company. They you know, have a multi-billion dollar market cap and they do a lot of cancer screening. Um, and they said, you know, during the pandemic, 
it was so a lot of people forget like now you can just go to Costco and get like all these tests because nobody wants them. But in the first early months of the pandemic, it was like hard to get your hands on a COVID test, you know, and um, basically the company said, look, we're going to like deploy some of our resources because we know how to make testing products into developing COVID tests. Um, And you just saw a lot of people from the for-profit sector, the nonprofit sector innovating because we needed it. And then the government scaling. Uh, question from the audience. Social innovation startups are usually C-corps and not able to access grants, which are only for non for which are not for profit organizations have access to them. Is that right? And when you said hybrid, does this address that issue? It, well, it doesn't address it yet. So here, here's I mean, we talk we have a video if you want to see it um, that we have an attorney do. You could just Google Stanford Social Innovation, Stanford Center for Social Innovation. We have all these free videos. So one of the videos is on choosing your organizational form. And this is like a trade-off and, I, and there's no easy answer to it. So you could say, well, I'm, I want to have social innovation organization. I'm going to be a nonprofit. So what that gets you is access to philanthropic capital and grants and um, along with earned revenue. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like that's the fine model. I would say a lot of our students are more interested in a for-profit model, which precludes them from philanthropic capital, but it just makes it you know, more nimble. The problem is, is that it's very hard to go to Sand Hill Road and go to venture capital with social innovation ideas. And that's because these are typically not unicorn companies. So who are, who's the customer? A lot of them are disadvantaged people. They're relying a lot on getting government taxpayer dollars and funneling it towards poorer people. They're, you know, not even addressing poor people in the U.S., but poor people around the world. You know, this is not Uber or DoorDash, like, you know, um, or Tesla. Like, this is not the kind of typical company. And so the VC dollars are not there. So you're in a, if you register as a C-Corp, you're in, stuck in a um, rock in a hard place because you can't get the philanthropic capital and you can't get the VC capital. Well, so what do you do? Well, one nice thing about these certifications is that they can signal to alternative forms of capital, like impact investing funds, that you have dual missions. And so right now, I mean, there is a lot of impact investing dollars. There's probably not enough. But in the future, I do see the ability of social innovation organizations to get this unique type of capital and what, and I know the people who run these companies, the, they really want answers of what's your theory of change? How are you going to achieve multiple stakeholder interests? And they're just different questions than the VCs ask, which is what's your product market fit, et cetera. Well, I mean, Gates Foundation has put a lot of money toward these social innovations as, almost like you would get from Draper Fisher or any of the other venture funds. Yeah. And, the, and Ford Foundation is also um, putting this kind of money toward social innovation as well. With you know, But you still have to prove to these folks that they're going to get a good return. I mean, I worked with a nonprofit that um, Bill Draper's foundation looked at. And you know, the folks who I was involved with this venture they were all, you know, very excited. Oh, these guys are interested. I said, it's run by a, ven- it started and run by a venture capitalist. They're going to want to know, has anybody eaten the dog food yet? You know, how much penetration has you got? What's, you know, what's the results been? They're going to want to see what the numbers look like before they give you 
money. They're not going to give you money just for the idea. You've going to have to go and and kind of prove out the model a bit before they put money in. So in some ways, they still work like venture capitalists, but that money is there for those purposes. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, so just two things. One, I think you definitely need to have good financial return, but you don't need to be a unicorn. Right. Um, and then the second thing is I think that's, I, I, I agree with you. I've seen this where you see a lot of the foundations that are opening these impact investment arms. And Stanford itself has an impact fund where the students invest in um, impact companies. Now, I'm not an attorney, but I, I, people are doing this. And so we were able to make it do at Stanford. I see the Gates Foundation doing it, the King Foundation doing it. So we are in this really interesting place where the foundations are setting up impact investing funds. Um, so yeah, that is the thing. I, I'm not a lawyer, so I can't tell you all the specifics, but it, it's a fascinating development. Uh, you write that social innovation, again, I say you, I always mean the book, uh, write that social innovation isn't just the province of nonprofits, but for-profits businesses are in this space as well. Please talk about the changes taken place over the past 20 years, because you started talking about that. And, and what are we going to see for the future in this area? Yeah, I mean, I think um, the big question is, you know, I don't want to denigrate nonprofits because they do a lot of important things. But I mean, a big question is how many more nonprofits do we need? Um, or is it better to consolidate and have a few nonprofits that are just really doing things very well? Um, and, and so I, I just think kind of the focus is, is no longer that the nonprofit is the only way to make the world a better place. But if you can embed social innovation thinking in for-profit organizations, that's probably the only way to properly scale. So, you know, nonprofits are always going to be limited. They're always going to have problems scaling. And the hope is, is that you have to embed social thinking into the traditional levers of capitalism. It cannot be something that sits separate from capitalism if you actually want the world to be a better place. No question. What are some of the social challenges and opportunities we've learned from from the pandemic? Yeah, um, you know, I think kind of what the pandemic, the, the why was this pandemic so challenging for the world and the country? And I think the one of the big reasons is is that it had very heterogeneous impacts on different groups of people. So believe it or not, like there are some people who you would call quote unquote pandemic winners. You know, these are people who got to work at home. Um, there's people whose stock portfolios and property values increased a lot. Um, maybe they did not have very much risk from COVID because um, they were young, healthy, et cetera. And then there was other people who were severely damaged by COVID. And, you know, it was very, very threatening. And it basically exposed that we have a very unequal society. And so a lot of the social innovations I've seen develop around the pandemic have been to address the social inequalities that were laid bare because of COVID. Um, so, I mean, a good example is education and kind of ed tech. So many, there's been, there was a group of students who did better because of the pandemic. Well, why did they do better? Because their parents were at home tutoring them. They had access to tutors that their parents paid for. And then you have 
all the data show this. There was a huge group of children who have really stagnated badly during the pandemic. They're two, three grades behind in math and reading because they couldn't go to school. So you, how do you uh, level that inequality? I'm not saying it's like there's any magic bullet, but you see a lot of social innovations trying to use ed tech products um, to address that. And you know what the theory of change really talks about is, is that what are your actual metrics that an ed tech product has to look at? And it can't just be the traditional for-profit metrics of do you have product market fit? Um, are you uh, reaching a lot of users? What's your revenue growth, your user growth? Because you could have just a, a, a video game company and do really well profitability-wise. That doesn't mean you're educating the people who are your customers. Um, so I, I think kind of figuring out how do you actually know you're teaching children while at the same time running a good business is like such a crucial part, part of that ed tech industry. I mean, there are so many ed tech startups. And, and, and one of the things you had just mentioned in the prior question was um, all those not, there's so many nonprofits that are overlapping. Like I'm here in Philadelphia. And there's so many nonprofits working on drugs and all these. Uh, and um, you know, we have a big problem uh, with gun violence in the city. And yet consolidating them into one group would be much more not only cost efficient, but probably efficient in the community as well. Because I kind of think that they all got a little bit of money, but not enough to really make a difference. And hence, uh, you know, like I, I read that we've spent 150 million on gun violence uh, in Philadelphia. And I'm like, 150 million, be better off just telling everybody who was thinking of shooting somebody that if you promise not to shoot anybody for a year, we'll give you a check for $5,000 at the end of the year. Well, other countries have done things that if you turn your gun in, you get like a check, like that's worth more than the value of the gun. And that has addressed a lot of issues. Yeah, we do that too in Philly. And that hasn't worked out because they sell you their crappiest guns and then take that money and buy I a see. better gun. I see. Uh, that, that doesn't work out very well at all. Uh, what do you see potential entrepreneurial opportunities that are either in the infancy stage or no one has really tackled them yet? You guys must see a lot of this. Yeah, so um, I actually some of the most exciting stuff I'm seeing is with the care economy. Um, so the, I would say that this could be the coming crisis in the U.S. at least, because um, we don't have good social innovation or in social institutions to address it. So the care economy is things like nursing, childcare, teaching, um, you know, uh, hospital care, uh, at-home hospital care. Uh, it's primarily driven by women who have left the labor force in higher numbers than men during the pandemic. Um, and we, this is such an important part of the economy. A lot of it is uncompensated. And so I'm seeing a lot of creative business models on how you socially innovate around the care economy. So let me give you one quick example of that. So if you're a salaried worker, um, childcare is actually difficult, but not like a huge problem because a lot of times you have like days off for, for sick, take care of sick children. Um, you have more flexibility with your work schedule, things like that. But if you're an hourly worker and your kid is sick or your kid, you have some childcare gap or lapse, you know, you lose those hours of pay. Um, and then you could actually be put into part-time status or something like that. It gets very complicated. So we have one startup we incubated at Stanford, which is working with companies to set up on-site co-op daycare facilities, 
where the workers will like come in and out to both do their job, let's say in a warehouse, and to take care of the children. And one reason this works is for two reasons. So one, a lot of the big for-profit players like Care.com or Bright Horizons, like they just aren't interested in this segment of the market. They want to upsell more to the salaried worker, like with tutoring and things like that. And then second, um, uh, we believe in design thinking a lot at Stanford. And so when they went into the communities and said, oh, what kind of models of childcare do you want? A lot of people who are hourly workers, like they want a co-op childcare model because they don't trust corporate childcare centers. They want their children to be taken care of by their community, which is, you know, a lot of, you know, cultures around the world, that's how they see childcare, right? It takes a village. Um, so it's trying to, how do you replicate that in the confines of a corporation? So I think that's very exciting. And I'm sure there's a lot of other exciting ideas in the care economy that we'll see emerge. I think childcare is uh, incredibly important, but in very costly to people who don't have financial means. Uh, I worked on a plan for a woman who ran a childcare business for 20 years in a um, urban neighborhood. And what she was getting from the state wasn't a, enough for her to survive. And what the parents could afford to pay was enough. And when you really think about what it's really costing society at the end of the day by not give, uh, allowing the parents to work their jobs, have the kids in a good environment, get the right education and so forth, it actually costs us more money down the road for all the bad things that are going to go and happen but it's not really calculated into the price of uh, or the or what should be spent on helping these families cuz my gosh I, you know she could only make like $50,000 a year um having like 10 kids and and they're also maxed out on the number of kids that you could take even if they could take more the state has certain requirements to it it's a, it's a complicated issue and good to have big brains in Stanford figuring out how to make that work in a more meaningful way where, you know, the, these people who work at these daycare centers, they make next to nothing um, to work there. And that makes it even more difficult to attract people uh, to work there. Are you seeing investors gaining more interest in social innovation ventures? Um, yeah, I mean, the, if you were to tell me, you know, 20 years ago or 10 years ago that TPG which is sort of a, a sky on the capitalism would have like an impact investing arm. You know, I wouldn't have believed you, but it, it does. And I see everybody, JP Morgan, KKR. I mean, all these people are getting interested in this space. Um, I mean, these are the same people in the 1980s. They wrote like books like Barbarians at the Gate about these like buyout shops and everything. And now they're getting interested in social innovation. So I think that's a great thing. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think, to really make it scale, I think you need one of two things. You need some government support, either through some tax advantage or something like that. Um, or second, you need bottom-up movement from the pension funds, because the pension funds then put pressure on the money managers like BlackRock and State Street and, and people like that. And then it becomes sort of like, well, the table stakes to getting capital is you have to be socially minded. So that's where we have to head. Uh, what's the biggest mistake social entrepreneurs make in trying to take their idea to help their community and or world into a real business venture that will attract capital if they're trying to scale it? 
Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I mean, I would say that there's two uh, you know, landmines that people oftentimes run into. Uh, so one is they oftentimes they conflate outcomes and outputs and activities. So they would say that, well, we're achieving social impact because we have X number of users. Well, that's an activity. Uh, that has nothing to do with your social impact. Um, or they would say, oh, well, we are having social impact because our test scores have improved. Well, that's getting part of the way there. But the real impact is to say, did, like, how have you improved people's lives? Do they have more money in their pockets? Are they less likely to go to jail? Are they living longer? Things like that. And that's very complicated. But if you actually want to make social impact, you have to think of the whole chain of events going through it. Um, I would say the other problem that I think a lot of nonprofits specifically have is they're obsessed with grant and foundation funding. Like they don't have earned revenue models. And so the problem with having no earned revenue model, and I know it because I know all these people who run nonprofits, they're spending all their time fundraising and not their time thinking about their business, investing in their business, thinking of ways to grow it. Um, so that's a problem. Um, so I think kind of figuring out what's the right earned revenue model while still staying core to the mission. Um, and I think this is also something very challenging for social innovation businesses is that if you accept non-philanthropic capital, there's going to be a lot of pressure on you to change your business model to not be a social innovation organization anymore. So I see this a lot with fintech, which is, you know, um, it, I mean, there's even big, big companies like SoFi, right? So, these are companies that kind of started out as social companies. Um, Mint, uh, Mint is another one um, where it's basically like, okay, you have this people, the lower end that we need, that are, you know, need access to, to finance, that have problems in the financial sector, that get kind of screwed over by predatory players in the financial sector. And then uh, once they start growing and have a successful business model, the investors are like, okay, well, now you basically have to make this a standard financial product. Um, you know, God, just take this to the regular mortgage holder, the regular credit card holder, all that kind of stuff. And so then they just change to being a regular financial services company. So I think that's something to watch out for is how you kind of stay true to your mission. Could you please talk about your school's extreme program? I thought this was a really great program. Uh, what is it, the mission, and how is it impacting social entrepreneurship and innovation? And by the way, Wharton had a similar program that I, for 50 years, that I was part of for 10 years as a faculty member. So talk about this. Sure, yeah. So this is a, a design for extreme affordability. It's a joint venture between the business school and the design school. Um, and basically the idea is, is that you start a company, but you're going into the developing economies and developing world and having products that are extremely cheap um, that people will use. So one of the most famous products that the, uh, the class produced was the Embrace Incubator. So as you know, if you go to any neo you know, unit, um, natal unit at any famous hospital like CHOP, where you're from, you know, you'll see these expensive incubators um, to kind of you know, to help the, the babies. And obviously people in like Africa, India don't have access to this. So what they developed was very low cost portable incubator um, that you can put the, the children in um, while you're trying to get them more advanced medical care. 
Um, and it, it's just, that's the focus of that program, which is how do you get really, really cheap products with high social impact that people will adopt and use. And a big theme of that class is design thinking. So it's not like you sit in a room with a sketch pad and say, okay, what do these poor people need? What do these poor people want? How do I give it to them? You actually go into the communities, do a lot of focus groups, a lot of listening, a lot of empathetic um, design to see what's actually going to have people adopt the product. Um, a lot of people have these cultural practices that if you just tweak the product a little bit, the uptake will be a lot higher. And if you're insensitive to people's culture, you could have a great product, but nobody takes it up. You write about the U.S. focus on secondary education, and we have listeners from around the world whose countries also have the goal of a better educated citizens. Who will create new ventures, employment, and wealth? How important is going to college today versus trade school? And you have an example in the book about how to make higher education affordable for everyone. Yeah, so Rob Erskine has a chapter. He's sort of an expert in education. Um, you know, so I really, if, if you're interested in secondary education, I really recommend people read that. Um, and especially since most of the social innovation is in K through 12, and there's just not that much focus on higher ed, even though a, that's actually a huge place where social innovation can make positive impact. And the big problem is, Going to college is, is very good for your life. The thing that will really screw up your life is if you drop out of college um, because you basically have invested a lot of money and you don't have the degree to show for it. Um, so the book, uh, someone wrote in the chat, what book are we talking about? It's called Frontiers in Social Innovation. And then I'm the editor of that. So it's published by Harvard Business Review Press. Um, and, you know, there's just a lot, I think the, I don't want to say like, okay, the only answer is college. The only answer is trade school. You know, I, I think actually the key is getting the private sector involved. So a lot of the really creative social innovation startups in the higher ed space have been figuring out ways that employers um, can basically, uh, um, uh, you know, kind of subsidize their employees' education. Um, so you've already seen some cool, uh, experience with this, like startups paying for people to, like Starbucks paying for their baristas to go to college, things like that. And I expect to see more of this, where the big thing is going to be matching the employer and the employee and the school so that there's a win-win-win situation, um, rather than putting all of the onus just on the student, that they have to pay for their own college, um, et cetera. What skills will future social entrepreneurs need to develop to be successful? I got to imagine it's going to be more than just what traditional for-profit entrepreneurs need. Yeah, so I think it's you need extra skills. And so one thing the book talks about is really you know resilience as a skill because um, with traditional entrepreneurship, I, I think there are entrepreneurs that like have a product and it takes a while to get traction. But oftentimes, if you have good product market fit, you get like immediate returns very quickly, you get viral growth, and you get a lot of positive returns. You know, in the social space, it may not work like that. You know, your growth might be a lot slower. It might be a lot tougher. Um, you, you're not going to have a unicorn. So it requires much more resilience. Um, so just as someone wants to know who's the person who wrote about education in the book, the person's name is Robert Erstein. 
Um, so he's an ed tech entrepreneur who also used to be the dean of students at Stanford. Thank you for answering that, Neil. Um, how does your Center for Social Innovation training aspiring social venture leaders, and does the training differ uh, than people who aren't focused on social ventures? What's the difference? Yeah, so we also have a Center for Entrepreneurial Studies, which is the more traditional for-profit um, entrepreneurial center. Um, the good thing I would say is that these organizations are becoming redundant. Um, I think that there's a merging that we have to realize that all businesses should be social, not just the ones that flag themselves as social in their mission. Um, you know, I'll tell you about some of the programming we have that could be interesting. So we have a social entrepreneurship program, which provides a pathway for when students have their idea, how do they develop it, build a theory of change, build a business model, get the funding and scale it. And so we've shared all of the stuff we teach in the book. Um, and then one of the most exciting things we've done is that a lot of students are actually not entrepreneurs, but they're more interested in what we call entrepreneurial finance. So that's, you know, VC or private equity. And so they're interested in funding these ventures, not doing the hard work of starting them. Um, so we actually have an impact investing fund where students um, actually source the ventures, they do due diligence, and we have an investment committee made up of practitioners and faculty and alumni who agree to give the money. Um, and it's, it's a great collaborative uh, thing where everybody in our school works together to deploy real money that hopefully will make a real difference in the world. Which companies have you seen at Stanford come out of these programs? You're saying, oh my gosh, these guys have really created something that's going to change the world or at least change their part of the world. Yeah, I think that's the right way to, to think of it, which is to change their part of the world. Um, so in addition to Embrace, which is the um, incubator one I talked about, um, there's another uh, great company, uh, Delight, which uh, developed, that came out of us, which developed um, ways that, solar ways that people can cook in Africa, because they were using a lot of, um, you know, it was bad for the environment, they were using the kerosene, but the biggest problem was that it was bad for human health, because it was creating a lot of carcinogens. And so this is basically a product where people can uh, do cooking, but everything is um, kind of powered by solar energy. Um, now, is this changing the world? No, because Africa produces such a small percentage of greenhouse gas emissions. It's not like they're solving climate change. But is, is this product making people's lives better in Africa? Yes, I would say it is. Do you remember uh, who was the professor from MIT that created laptops that could be either solar powered or you could wind them up yeah and, and it was going to be huge but then the computer companies decided that they would lower the price so much that it made his product obsolete or or not cost effective i forget what this was but i mean and, and maybe what he did ended up spurring the the computer industry to create these laptops that were going to be more cost effective but here you could run them without electricity do you remember that one i do and that story is not a bad thing like especially if you actually care about changing the world sometimes changing a market is the real way you can do it so another example is that there's this company called chime which i think is a successful company in the you know the fintech space and you know their big thing was kind of eliminating fees all these fees that are part of the checking accounts. 
Um, a lot of sociological research has found that a lot of people think like, oh, like why do people go to these check cashing facilities? And a lot of people like, you know, think, oh, it's because the people who use these check cashing facilities are not very smart. Well, actually the sociological research has shown that that's not the case, that they are pretty smart. Is that sometimes these check casting facilities were giving them a better deal than JP Morgan or Bank of America, which were just destroying them on fees. Um, and if you actually go into a check cashing facility, it looks like a McDonald's, like they have like very transparent pricing. The interest rates are very high, but like, you know, th there's no like hidden fees or anything like that. So what Chime did is say, okay, well, how do we disrupt the industry so that people, if they're unhappy with JP Morgan and they're unhappy with the check cashing place, where can they go? Well, after this company started, all these other companies, Bank of America, JP Morgan, started getting rid of all their fees, you know, because they knew they just couldn't get away with it anymore. Um, now, is that hurting Chime? Obviously it is. But is it better for the world that you're pushing industry players to behave more socially responsibly? That's great. I think that's ultimately anybody's goal who does these nonprofit ventures is if they can change the world in a positive way. I mean, that was the idea behind the microloans until all the big banks said, oh my gosh, the interest we could earn on these things. They weren't doing it for the right reasons and had uh, they flooded the market with this money and had uh, tremendous write downs because they weren't loaning people money who really knew what they were doing uh, with them, that microfinance program was vetting the company, the people that they were giving these micro loans to, right? That's a negative version of the story, for sure. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, what he did was great, but when they all jumped in, uh, it, they were doing it for strictly for-profit motives because they were looking, oh my God, we can charge these people 30% interest. And yeah, I think, I think that's a little bit different. Like, I think that is people like seeing blood in the water and kind of starting stuff. I think the chime example is people altering their business practices that already existed. No, no, I agree with you. I'm just saying that here was something that was good and could have even been better where people jumped in with not the right intentions, unfortunately. Yeah, and I think part of that is they're not really design thinkers. When they do that, they're just looking for opportunity. And I think one reason microcredit early on was successful is because they realized that social sanctioning was like such a good mo way to do it is that they looked in these communities and said, okay, well, we're gonna have the communities holding people and them hold each other account accountable for paying back the loans. Um, but if you basically don't have that design thinking approach, um, it, you know, you're gonna have problems. Uh, because we live in such a technolog technologically interconnected society, how will society make sure to reduce the duplication so projects don't run out of money and can't execute on their missions because there's so many people chasing the same problem? And you even said like at Stanford, there's like four people chasing the same thing because it's not really coordinated. Yeah, I mean, this is a challenging problem. I mean, it's a trade-off because on the one hand, you want a lot of people experimenting. But the problem with when you have a lot of people experimenting is that you can get a lot of duplication. And I think kind of the what has to kind of step in is you have the, the big foundations and players, and you have the government that will choose the right things to scale. Um, I mean, that is the hope. Uh, because I think if you have a lot of small players duplicating each other's efforts, it's very hard to scale. But if one of them can use a scaling function like the government, I think that can address some of those problems. 
You wrote that many of the uh, world's problems are sitting unused on laboratory shelves or languishing on the drawing board of social enterprise. How can we help these ideas fulfill their destiny? Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of this is kind of the chapter by Steve Davis on scaling. Um, and, and I think, I mean, his belief, which is kind of forwarded in the book, is you need some amplifier for your technology. Um, and this doesn't necessarily even have to be the government. But I would say the, the what you want to look at is the model is the pharmaceutical industry. So how does the pharmaceutical industry work? Is that you have people with good ideas. They either tend to be professors in universities or they tend to be people in small biotech uh, startups. And they do not have infrastructure to get to clinical trials. Whereas what's Pfizer good at? You know, Pfizer does come up with ideas, but what they're super good at is that they can take an idea and get it to market. And we sh and with COVID vaccine, it was like invented in a university and really developed in a small biotech. But the reason why that vaccine was in everybody's arms was because Pfizer was able to scale it. Um, so you need all three things. You need the idea in the university, you need the small startup who's innovating, and you need the big player, whether it's a government or a big uh, multinational, to truly scale it. So I would encourage your, your listeners to like, think, which is how can they apply the logic of the pharmaceutical industry, which has a lot of success stories, to their own social enterprise, to your own social problem? Yeah, I, I think that a lot of people don't even understand how the pharmaceutical industry works, that you're drilling for oil and you hit a, and it's a very expensive drill and you could spend a billion dollars and still come up with nothing at the end of the day. And did even uh, COVID to cure, not cure it, but keep it in a way that people weren't dying, that actually was 10 years in the making. Um, people thought, hey, they just put this together in nine months. But I think it was like 10, 15 years of research and development, and it just ended up being sped up much quicker. And because the technology now allowed for better collaboration, all of this moved everything forward in a way that saved so many lives. Yeah, but we have very good system to accomplish that. So, you know, the universities, which are nonprofit, can take on a lot of the risk because they're, you know, being subsidized by society. And so it's not like Pfizer has to take on all of that risk, right? They can see what are the ideas that are emerging from the scientific community and then pick and choose the ones that have the most promise. So I just figure like when you have other high risk stuff as well, that has high social benefit, that's a good model. Yeah. And, and the pharmaceutical companies do rely on the small companies because I remember uh, being toured by a CEO of one of the major pharmaceutical companies. And, we, and he was saying, you know, because we have so much in the bank that there's not this um, sense of urgency among the uh, researchers where when we've invested in these startups that realize that if they don't produce quickly and work 14 hours a day, six days a week or whatever that number is, that they'll be out of business. And hence, a good uh, chunk of their pipeline ends up coming from these uh, smaller companies. And that's been traditionally the way it's been at least for the, what, 30, last 30, 40 years. Yeah, and now it's even been formalized. I would say almost every, if not every major pharmaceutical player has a venture capital division that is basically looking and sourcing for, for biotech um, startups.
Yeah, I don't know any one of them that doesn't have that group uh, in there because they're so reliant on this. I mean, I've worked with Galaxo's venture fund, uh, I guess, since the 80s. So absolutely. At what age do you think children should be taught entrepreneurship and should social entrepreneurship be taught in middle and or high school? Yeah, that's a fascinating question. I guess it depends like what you view entrepreneurship. And I, I can at least tell you the way Stanford views it. Um, Stanford views entrepreneurship as like a mindset rather than a job. Um, and they view like you can be an entrepreneur. So, I mean, one of our famous alumni is Mary Barra, who's the uh, oh, CEO sure. of, of GM. And I think the school views her as an entrepreneur, even though she's leading a Fortune 500 company. Because I think, you know, she was tasked with taking kind of an older company, bringing it into the modern age, electrifying it, making it competitive, et cetera. And that takes an entrepreneurial mindset too. So I would say entrepreneurship is not just about starting a company that's never existed before, but it's more like a personality trait that you can build and develop and that everybody should be taking entrepreneurship classes no matter what job you want. I mean, if you're going to go work for the government, I would say you should probably take an entrepreneurship class. So if you think about entrepreneurship that way, then like, yeah, like younger, the better, because it's not like, you know, you're teaching a specific skill or a job. You're kind of teaching a way of thinking. And um, that's like, I think the earlier you can do that, the better. I a hundred percent. I started both of my girls being entrepreneurs at very, very young ages because you basically learn a, a variety of skill sets, but you also have an appreciation for what everybody has to do. And you become more self-reliant and you become more resilient uh, from doing it. Cause you get, you get your teeth kicked out a lot when you're an entrepreneur. So I think all of those skills uh, make them more self-sufficient at the end of the day. I mean, it, I guess it almost comes back to colonial times when people started uh, their small businesses, they had to do the sales, the marketing, the product development, everything. And they had a greater appreciation for what everybody else had to do. Yeah. And I think kind of the, how do we change that for the 21st century? I think traditionally you could say, okay, well, Adam Smith told us that if everybody's an entrepreneur, society as a whole is going to get better. And as a first order, you know, uh, theory, that's probably true. Capitalism has made the 20th century, you know, the greatest growth in human development ever seen. But going forward, I think having social mission embedded when you're teaching entrepreneurship is a good thing to really reinforce that the goal of entrepreneurship is not just to make yourself money, but is to create products and services that are bettering your fellow man. What's the difference between impact investing and just plain vanilla investing? Yeah, this gets kind of confused a lot. And I'll just tell you a story to kind of, you know, kind of give you a little bit of background. So a while ago, Stanford had convened a bunch of people, some faculty, but a lot of people in the investing space to kind of advise it on either how they should think about investing their money or how they should teach students to invest money, and especially how to do that in a socially responsible way. And you know, many of the people there who are from investing firms, they kind of had this view, which is, oh, like, if you are socially minded, you'll make the most money. Um, well, if that's what you believe, then there's no difference between impact investing and investing. You should just invest because that's what's going to, it being socially minded makes you the most money. You should just focus on making the most money. 
So impact investing is different. It's saying that traditionally with investing, we're trying to balance risk and return. And impact investing says there's a third dimension, which is social impact. So how do you consider all of these things, social impact, risk, and return? And that means you actually might make lower risk-adjusted returns if you want to make a social impact. And I think that's a different way of thinking because most people in this space just want to think you will never have to compromise a risk-adjusted return. If that's what you believe, there is no purpose to the field of impact investing. What's measuring social, why is measuring social impact so hard? Well, this kind of goes to it, which is if you're going to balance risk, return, and impact, you have to measure the impact somehow. And what's complicated is, is that your intervention, we actually don't know what's the causal effect of your intervention on the world. So, you know, you deploy this ed tech technology. Does that actually improve test scores? Does it actually increase people's um, well-being and their quality of life? That's all like really hard stuff to measure. Um, it usually takes like expensive academic studies, expensive randomized controlled trials that people don't have access to. So, you know, I think a lot of funds are doing the best they can. So TPG has this idea called the impact multiple of money where they take existing research and estimate what is the social impact of the dollars they're investing. If it can clear a hurdle rate, something like 2.5x, they can then say, okay, given this impact constraint, let's choose the investments that have the highest return. So is that methodology perfect? I'm sure it's not, but it's actually a rigorous way to balance these three things. What will it take for the world to embrace socially conscious investing as the primary way of deploying capital rather than just being a niche product? I think it's gonna have to take regular investors to take control of corporate governance. So I gave the example of pension holders before, right? So. If pension people, people at pension say, this is what we demand of how, how our money is managed, they have so much money, right? Because it's their earnings their whole life. They can move the needle, right? And the other example is, and I don't know a good solution to this, but it's something for your listeners to think about, is how do you get normal people involved in corporate governance? So what has finance, including all your buddies at Wharton, Jeremy Siegel, everybody, what have they taught yeah. us over the last 50 years or 40 years, which is don't buy an individual stock, buy, you know, invest in the index funds. And uh, the whole technology is like ETFs around this. You have no loads, like, you know, it's really disruptive. And that is fundamentally correct, right? But what is the downside to that? Well, in the 1950s, people would buy a stock they would hold on to their stock certificates. Maybe even some of them would put a frame their stock certificate and put it on the wall. And they would say, I'm an owner of this company and I'm going to influence how this company behaves, how socially responsible it is. Now, I would ask your listeners, many of whom probably have listened to Jeremy Siegel, many of whom have index funds, et cetera, or you know, the ETFs, they probably get something in the mail from Fidelity or Vanguard or something which says important documents, uh, yeah. important governance documents open immediately. And how many people throw that into the recycling bin immediately? And almost everybody does. So the consequent, the pro to that is you don't have to worry. Your money's making returns. Somebody else is handling the corporate governance, the proxy voting, et cetera. The downside to this is that this puts all the power in the hands of BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard, Fidelity not in the power of ordinary investors, which is how society used to work. 
So that's just an open question. I don't have a good solution to that. But if you want corporate governance to change, regular people have to be involved in corporate governance. I think you're right about that, uh, for sure. I mean, because I think it uh, it's way above everybody's head um, how it's how it's inter uh, how it's transacted and so forth. And you're right. I get those things now. I just they go directly to the recyclable bin. They don't even see the inside of my my condo. And we yeah, we have a recyclable bin right in front, right where we pick up our mail. So yeah, it never get gets passed. I don't think anybody really pays a, a lot of attention to it. Um, many entrepreneurs listening to this show want to know how they find investors focused on solving social problems. What, what's your suggestion? I mean, where, you know, you and I talked earlier and said, hey, the Gates Foundation and Ford Foundation, but, you know, we have a lot of folks here who are even are uh, running for-profit businesses, but with a uh, focus on the betterment of society. How do you go about finding these investors? Yeah, uh, so I would say two things. One is, um, you know, finding the investors. Uh, and I think there's more cropping up, um, you know, like Draper Richards Kaplan um, is an example of an impact investor. Um, there, there's plenty of them that are starting up, um, you know, Lumen Capital. Um, I mean, there's, there's just many of them. Uh, I think what's more interesting is where do you find the entrepreneurs? And I think there's a lot of interesting incubator communities that are starting up that are modeled after the for-profit ones. So I'm sure everybody's heard of Y Combinator. It's oh, sort sure. of, you know, it's like produced so many famous companies and everybody like Sequoia is just like falling over themselves to try to get in on these companies. Well, you know, the social impact space is trying to develop similar stuff. So there's one called Echo in Green, um, which is trying to basically be the Y Combinator for social impact. So if you're listeners, you should check it out. You know, uh, Google Echo in Green, look at what companies they're incubating um, and see if you have any interest. Uh, there, I th I'm forgetting there are angel groups, and one of them I think is called Social Investors or Impact and in, in Pesting Investors. But there are groups out there targeted uh, at this market, and also contacting schools like Stanford and Wharton, where they actually know who these folks are, or may even have their own funds that are deployed, are also good places to go and start. And the foundations that large corporations set up also have an aspect of this as well, uh, so they can go to them. But going directly to the government itself, the government is running thin on funds that are just needed to run <laughs> the government and, and, and fix your potholes. You know, where our, our infrastructure is, uh, has, if you've traveled the world like I have, uh, it's incredible that the United States infrastructure is in such sad, sad shape compared to other countries. Uh, that's true. And I would say the foundations, like the newer foundations associated with the technology companies are being more impact focused. And they have put pressure on kind of the older foundations, you know, the Ford Foundation, et cetera, to be more impact focused too. So just two examples. I mean, everyone's heard of the Gates Foundation. They're like so much into measurement impact. Another one people may not have heard of is Omidyar Network, which was the eBay money. So that's Pierre Omidyar's fortune. And, and they did a lot of revolutionary stuff on how you deploy capital to impact investors and social entrepreneurs. Um, so yeah, I think a lot of the cutting edge foundations are good places to go to as well. But the final thing to remember everybody is you've got to show them uh, a model that works. They're not putting that money in until they see that you've kind of proved out the model in some way, shape or form, right? 
I think that's true. Um, I mean, this is the challenging thing, and it's a reason why we look to the for-profit entrepreneurial space for for uh, inspiration um, to to kind of realize how you scale quickly, how you get product market fit, while still keeping in mind the social issues, the theory of change, et cetera. That's the goal. Neil, thank you so much for sharing uh, about this book and information in this particular area, which is so important for the future of the world in general. And you're doing great work and that book is gonna have a big impact uh, around the world. So thank you again for taking the time uh, to speak with us. Thanks for having me and happy Thanksgiving. Everybody have a happy Thanksgiving. Please be safe. And we'll look forward to seeing you all at a regular time next Friday. Take care. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.